I don't know if you have ever had anyone approach you and make the most troubling of statements. You are just like your father. Or you are just like your mom. They are fighting words. Sometimes I stare at the person in utter disbelief, thinking, my father? I'm like my father? As if I would be like someone else's father. <laughs> there is something that is true, no matter kind of which, what kind of home you grew up in, whether it was good or bad or any which way, we are all a product of where we came from. The good, the bad, the ugly, we all come from somewhere, and we are all a product of our environment. Let me give you an example of how this works without naming any names. Um, <laughs> I've done counseling with a lot of people over the years and, and counsel different couples who are going to get married. And one of the things that we talk about with the couples is do they know how to fight? Uh, it's important that you learn how to have arguments and how to express yourself uh, to your partner. Uh, but one of the questions that I ask them when we're talking about if they know how to fight is, how did your parents fight? Now, this is a really important question. And maybe you haven't considered how important this question is because let's say that someone's parents fought all the time, okay? Argued about everything. As they become adults, they are going to have one of basically two different approaches to arguing. Number one, because their parents argued all the time, they might want to never argue with anyone because it was such a negative thing for them when they were growing up, they just, they don't want to live their lives that way. On the other hand, they might also be very argumentative themselves because they learned growing up that that's how you solve all your problems is by getting into fights and arguments. Now, the true is same on the other side of the board. If your parents never fought, you might fight more because you saw them not work out their problems together, or you might not fight at all because you viewed that as the healthy way to have a relationship. Now, I know what you're thinking, Bryce, I just get mad and argue. I get that, I get that. But understand what I'm saying here is that we are all formed in ways we are aware of and in ways we are not aware of by the environments that we come from. And the things that happen to us as we are growing up stick with us for the rest of our lives. They make us who we are. And sometimes that means we reinforce the way that we grew up and, and all that happened and who our parents were and what we learned. And on the other side of that, sometimes we are fighting against who our parents were for our entire lives. I mean, any of those things is possible, right? But we are all a product of where we grew up. We've been studying the life of Joseph, and he is very much a product of where he grew up. But again, we've said this lots of times, his family did not create the most healthy environments for him to grow up in. And so one of the things, you know, we, we look at the circumstances of Joseph's life. We see, you know, that his brother sold him to slavery. Uh, so he was a slave and then he was accused 
of, of, of trying to take advantage of Potiphar's wife, and then he was in prison, and then he was her God, and we see all these things. We're about to see Joseph, who he is as a person, which what we've seen so far is that we don't really know a lot about him as a person. I mean, we know the details of his life. We know the, the environment he came from. We've seen all the things that have happened to him, but we have very little dialogue with him where he says what he's thinking and what he's feeling. But based on last week, what we read, Joseph's life has just changed in an unimaginable way. He woke up in the morning as a prisoner. And by the end of the day, he was second in charge in all of Egypt. The dude had to have whiplash from changing so fast what had happened to him. So when we last saw him, he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams and was put in charge of the country, second only to Pharaoh himself. Um, he told Pharaoh that God was going to bring seven years of abundance followed by seven years of famine. He also presented Pharaoh with a ready-made plan for how to prepare for the famine that was to come. So Pharaoh appointed him and he gave Joseph his own signet ring. He put him in fine robes and put a gold chain around his neck. Joseph was styling. He rode around Egypt in Pharaoh's chariot. He was given a new name, an Egyptian name. He was given a wife. And during the seven years of plenty, Joseph collected the food that was produced over what Egypt needed to get through those years. And he stored all of that grain in the different cities. And there was so much over what they needed that they stopped counting how much they had. And the Bible says these storehouses of grain, the grain looked like the sand of the seashore. There was so much of it. During this time, Joseph also had two sons. Uh, the first one was named Manasseh, which sounds like the Hebrew word for forget. And he says, God made me forget all of my trouble from my father's household. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, number two, the second son was named Ephraim, which sounds like the Hebrew word for twice fruitful. God has made me fruitful in my land of suffering. Now, when the famine came, it was everywhere. It was all over the known world. But in Egypt, there was food. So when Egypt began to feel the effects of the famine, i.e. food had run out amongst their people, the Egyptians went to the storehouses and they bought grain so that they could feed their families. And the Bible says that the whole world, all the world, came to Egypt to buy grain. The famine was a serious deal, friends. It was life or death. And Egypt had the only store of grain in the world. So something that we have to know, because we've seen this throughout the entire story, who is benefiting from Joseph's work? Pharaoh and the kingdom are. And, and it just, it gets more dramatic as it goes in terms of how much wealth and land Joseph brings into the kingdom. But what do we know about him? 
Joseph. We know that God gave him wisdom. We know that he acted with character when he was put to the test. We know that he fully became part of Egypt's culture. But we also know, as the son's names tell us, that Joseph has not forgotten where he's come from. And how could he? How could he? I mean, some of us remember when our sibling broke like our favorite toy when we were seven and remind them of how they broke that toy and ruined our lives when we were seven. Now, if your sibling sold you into slavery, that's just a whole different kettle of tea there, isn't it? Right? You're going to hang on to those things. And he has not forgotten what he has been through while he's been in Egypt. 13 years, 13 years of being a prisoner, a servant, a slave, of being forgotten, accused, overlooked. I would think I would be somewhat bitter at that point. But we see him go about his business until we get to chapter 42. So if you have your Bibles open up there, we're going to go through the whole chapter today, but we're going to start in verses 1 through 5 of Genesis 42. Meanwhile, I added that, because Joseph, did a, he's doing his thing. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you keep looking at each other? He continued, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Then 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for there was famine in the land of Canaan also. So Jacob and his sons were still living in the land of Canaan. They had to go to Egypt to get grain just like everyone else. So Joseph, uh, or Jacob, and I love this line, uh, why are you sitting there looking at each other, right? So what is that? That is kind of a telling statement about the nature of his relationship with the 10 brothers, Benjamin aside. He's a little snarky, isn't he? He's a little snarky. And he tells them to go, but he will not let Benjamin go. Why? Well, Benjamin was the second son of Rachel, Joseph being the first. He was the baby in the family. But Rachel had died, his favorite wife. Joseph was killed by a wild animal, so he thinks. And he will not let his only son from his favorite wife, the only reminder he has of her, go because he cannot bear the thought of losing Benjamin too. It's too much. Joseph and the brothers' actions against him hang over the family. He's gone, but he's not forgotten. And what happened that day when they decided first to kill him and then not to kill him, but to send him away, their actions those days, that day, defined the rest of their lives. What they did in that one moment. And they cannot take back what they have done. And moreover, they really damaged their father 
in, 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 in doing this whole charade. And they have to live with him, and in a sense, they have to protect him as he's now the only one in the family who has any sense of God. Because God gave who the dreams? Joseph. God told Joseph about what was to come, but Joseph's been gone for 13 years. Jacob is the only one left. This has become their lives. Trying to keep Jacob as the head of the family, as the one who knows God, alive. And doing whatever they can to take care of him. Therefore, the brothers, throughout this entire story, and it's three chapters long. We're not doing all three chapters today. That would be a lot. It's three chapters long. The brothers are powerless. They don't get to make decisions throughout this process. They are simply, they, they have to go wherever it is that God wants them to go. And, and they are bound by the power of this unforgiven past, immobilized by their guilt, driven by anxiety. Joseph hasn't forgotten what happened either. Let's pick it up in verse 6. <clears throat> Now, Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Huh. That's weird. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did, not, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. No, my lord, they answered. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. No, he said to them. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, Your servants were twelve brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no more. Joseph said to them, It is just as I told you. You are spies, and this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother, the rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. If you are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go and take grain back for your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. This they proceeded to do. They said to one another, surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us. 
If only they knew. Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? It's a little late, Reuben, okay? (laughs) Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, but you wouldn't listen? Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. He turned away from them and began to weep. But then came back and spoke to them again. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. Okay. If you were Joseph, how would you feel when you saw your brothers come in asking you for food? How would you feel when they knelt down to the ground in front of you? How would you feel knowing that you have absolute power over these guys, knowing where you've been? What do you think? How would you feel? Glad to see them? I told you so. Joseph, we kind of get the picture that Joseph was like, oh boy. Oh boy, this is going to be good. This is going to be good. And the first thing they did, obviously, was they they bowed down when they approached Joseph, um, which is just terribly ironic, right? That they got rid of him so they wouldn't have to bow down to him, and now what are they doing? They're bowing down to him. And the future they were determined to avoid is now standing right in front of them with a big gold chain around his neck. The dream is coming true. They think they stopped it. But the dream is coming true. And it's standing right in front of them. Joseph was not particularly kind to his brothers. He was the second most powerful man in the world. Therefore, he doesn't have to be. All things aside... He doesn't have to be good to these people from Canaan that traveled to get food. He has all the power, and they have none. Not only is he more powerful than them, they have to go to him for food. There is no other game in town. This is it. He holds their very lives in his hand. So he does what little brothers do. He messes with them kind of relentlessly. He accused them of being spies multiple times. Now keep in mind, as he's doing this, as he's saying these things, he's speaking in what language? He's speaking in Egyptian. And his translator is relaying all of this to his brothers, which makes the situation even a little bit more funny to me. That he's yelling at them in Egyptian And the translator is trying to tell them what's going on. He accused them of being spies. He called them liars. He threatened their lives. And there was a really odd condition that he put on them, which kind of doesn't make a lot of sense if you think about it just on its own. The condition he put on them was they had to bring Benjamin back. And bringing Benjamin back is going to prove what? That they're not liars. It doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? I'm saying that you're a liar and that you're a spy, 
you're saying that you have another brother at home. Prove you're not a liar by bringing that brother here. It's a little weak, honestly. Do you know why it kind of doesn't make sense? Because Joseph doesn't really know what he's doing. This is another day that he has woken up to go about his business and in walk his brothers. And part of what I think we see throughout this is that he doesn't know what he wants to do. He doesn't know how he wants to handle this. What he knows is that he needs more time and he has to figure out what it is that he wants to do. I mean, he had to be overcome with every sort of emotion, anger, sadness, joy, worry. He has all the feels, all of them, at the same time. So why does he ask for Benjamin? Well, Benjamin was his only full brother. He was the only brother that didn't participate in Joseph Gate back when that happens. He didn't, he was the only brother that didn't sell him into slavery. So Benjamin, to a degree, is all that Joseph did not have with his own family. And it ties him to his father. But this request poses a really serious problem, which Joseph doesn't know what kind of a problem it is. Jacob doesn't want Benjamin to go. Like, really, 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 really doesn't want Benjamin to go. Now, do the brothers, do they have any ability to make choices in this interchange with Joseph? No. They are completely powerless. So Joseph threw them all in jail for three days and then sent them on their way with the exception of Simeon under the condition that they come back with Benjamin. If I were him, I would have kept Judah in jail because Judah was kind of the one that spearheaded that, that whole movement. But here's the other thing. He sends them away, keeps Simeon, and so they have no choice again, but to return. They simply have to do whatever it is they're told. Let's pick it up in verse 25. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to put each man's silver back in his sack, and to give them provisions for their journey. After this was done for them, they loaded their grain on the donkeys and left. At the place where they stopped for the night, one of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey, and he saw his silver in the mouth of his sack. My silver has been returned, he said to his brothers. Here it is in my sack. Their hearts sank, and they turned to each other trembling and said, What is this that God has done to us? Okay, everything else was pretty underhanded. This is just downright mean. Because they had taken the silver to do what? To purchase food, which they gave to Joseph to purchase food. But Joseph can't stop messing with them, so he puts the silver back in their bags. So having the silver in their bags along with the grain actually makes them look like thieves. That they had taken all of this and they know they have no choice but to go back and face this guy again who already thinks they are lying spies. Oops. How do they get around this? What can they do? What can they do? Nothing. And that's kind of the point. 
that we see in this story is that there is nothing they can do not to defy Joseph, but to stop the dream that God gave. There's nothing they can do about that. But we see something a little bit interesting. Who is God to them? He's their father's God. He's the father, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But they have this sense that all this has happened because why? Because they did bad. And they're right. All this has happened because they did the wrong thing. But they look at God and they don't understand him. Why has God done this to us? Why has God made this happen? So God, these, these guys who are living in this guilt and anxiety about everything that they've done, their view of God is that God is punishing them for what they did. What a sad existence these brothers had to live. Let's pick it up in verse 29. When they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them. They said, the man who is Lord over the land spoke harshly to us and treated us as though we were spying on the land. But we said to him, we are honest men, we are not spies. We were 12 brothers, sons of one father. One is no more, and the youngest is now with our father in Canaan. Then the man who was Lord over the land said to us, this is how I will know whether you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me and take food for your starving households and go. But bring your youngest brother to me so I will know that you are not spies but honest men. Then I will give your brother back to you and you can trade in the land. As they were emptying their sacks, there in each man's sack was his pouch of silver. When they and their father saw the money pouches, they were frightened. Their father Jacob said to them, You have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. Then Reuben said to his father, You may put both of my sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Thanks, Dad. Entrust him to my care, and I will bring him back. But Jacob said, My son will not go down there with you. His brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm comes to him on the journey you are taking, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in sorrow. Okay. Wow, what a mess. It is like, yeah. Joseph put the silver back in all of their bags, which they didn't discover until they were there in front of their dad. And I imagine them kind of slinking back home anyway. Like, who's going to tell dad <laughs> what happened? And something that's really driven home to us, again, is how brokenhearted Jacob was. The loss of Joseph is something he has never recovered from. And he says some things that are pretty hurtful to his sons. Number one, he's not going to send Benjamin back, which means he's basically doing what with Simeon? Yeah. So Benjamin is worth more to Jacob than Simeon. We can't get around that. He blames the brothers for everything that was going on in Egypt. But we know the brothers were just like a feather blown in the wind. He recalled the loss of Joseph. 
And I don't know if you caught this, I think Susie did, because I saw, heard a smirk over there. Heard a smirk, saw a smirk. <clears throat> but the phrase about Benjamin, Jacob says, his brother is dead and he is the only one left. To the ten living brothers that are there. Well, the nine, I suppose. They got rid of Joseph to keep his dream from coming true, and instead of being free of him, they have lived in, their, in his shadow their whole lives. And they're hard to feel sorry for, but guys, their life stinks. It's pretty bad. But we are reminded of the kind of environment that Jacob created for his family. He played favorites. He loved Rachel more than Leah. Everyone knew it. Joseph was his favorite. He loved Joseph more than all the other sons. Everyone knew it. And now he's blaming his sons for something that was completely outside of their control. Reuben even offered to put his own sons on the line in order to appease Jacob and to get what they needed, but none of it mattered because Jacob was a broken man and his own sons had done this to him. Joseph's life has been hard over the last 13 years. But Joseph's family's life has been a nightmare ever since Joseph, the receiver of the dream, was gone. So, what do we learn from this story? I don't know, I mean, don't sell your brother into slavery and lie to your dad because someday that brother may be king of the world and you will have to buy food from him. It's possible, that could be a lesson. Um, little brothers always get back at you that could be a lesson as well. We see the mess that we can create for ourselves. You know, it's so interesting because in the life of Joseph, Joseph has, as we've read it, Joseph has been just a player in it. God has moved him from place to place. Blessed him where he is. Joseph had no control over what was going on, but God raised him up in the, in the oddest way possible through slavery and prison and all these other things, to become who he is. And Joseph prospered everywhere he went. God was with him. Was God with his family? Well, we can't say that God was completely absent from his family. There's nothing to indicate that. But we also know that they are living without in their lives. The vision that God had for this people and this family, it, all, it just disappeared when Joseph was gone. And most of that mess was a mess that Jacob started, that he passed on to his kids, who then made it more messy, until all of them are just living, living this miserable half-life. Life is really messy, and we carry the mess around with us. And we are a product of our environments. We all come from somewhere. I come from Fresno, land of plenty. <laughs> we all come from somewhere, and, and that makes us, who, makes us who we are. And as we said earlier, sometimes that means we are dragging pain around with us. Sometimes it means we're dragging 
great love and encouragement and hope with us. But you all know how messy families are. I'm not going to talk about my family right now. That's not the point. But we all know how messy families are. There's members in my family that don't speak to one another and haven't for years. And that may never change. That's just kind of what being a family is like, right? Sometimes. Not always. Not always, but sometimes. We see so clearly two things. The mess we create for ourselves, but also what it looks like to live without the hope that God gives us. And living without the hope that God gives us just amplifies the messes we create. Yeah? Because one of the best things about God is that he sees our mess and he still acts out his dream through us. The story tells us really kind of more about God than it does about any of the people involved. Because, you know, God has to work with us as messy as we are. Let me rephrase that. God chooses to work with us as messy as we are. Because for some reason, we who cannot hold healthy relationships with the people that are supposed to be closest to us, God looks at us and sees people that have so much potential to live out his dream. That he would be our God and we would be his people. And God did not simply leave us to figure that out on our own. He gave us the plan, the solution. And because we have that in our lives, friends, no matter how messy life gets, we know that God's dream will not be stopped. Can I get an amen on that one? Amen. That God's dream will never be stopped. There's nothing that can be done by kings, by family, by foreign nations that will stop what God wants. And that is encouragement. Because the good news is that he does work with us, that he cares for a world filled with imperfect people and impossible situations. And he provides a way through and gives us hope. What a messy story. It just gets worse. It does. But in the end, it is God's dream that his people come to a place and a time, and God is going to make that happen.